Well, if you can please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Um, it's on page 1164 in your pew Bibles. Or if you can join us on an electronic device. Philippians chapter 1, um, verses 9 to 11. It reads this, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Father, we do ask that you would help us to be loving people, that we may glorify you, Lord. Uh, as we reflect on this last year, we acknowledge that your goodness has indeed been with us through all of 2021, Lord God, you are good when you give and you are good when you take away. When the sun shines upon us and indeed, Lord, when the night gathers over us, you are still good. And so, Lord, we pray that we would trust you in this coming year and that this kind of trust will build in us a kind of tenacity that it would fill us with holy love, that it would give us godly grit, that we would be free, Lord God, from self-trusting anxiety. Lord God, we pray that this year would be a year of progress, that we would uh, indeed progress in our pilgrimage with greater adoration to you and with greater love to others. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, New Year is kind of somewhat arbitrary. Uh, there's nothing intrinsically potent in the change of a calendar year. There's no reverse Cinderella magic. When the clock strikes 12, all the problems don't suddenly disappear. And yet for many of us, we still think it's right, and I think it's right, that we have the sense uh, to establish resolutions, um, some kind of self-improvement project, some kind of uh, realistic, sustainable goal for the entire year. We had a friend last Thursday tell us that she would plan to read a book every week, at least one book a week, and she was able to read 56 books. Um, last year, I told my wife I would like to eat more vegetables, um, and that lasted maybe a few months. We all have resolutions in the new year, and well, here Paul, he has a kind of resolution for the Philippians. He wanted them to grow in discerning love. Love is the very first thing he prays for. And just to clarify, in Philippians, love connotes a sincere 
uh, and self-sacrificial concern for others, both temporal and eternal goods, and it's regulated and stimulated by biblical knowledge. So it's not omnitolerance, it's a distinctive, holy love. And why does, Paul, why does Paul pray for a holy love? It's because love is the sum of all the commandments. All Christian ethics begins with the command of love. Writ large upon all the law and the prophets is the word love. When the Lord asked Jesus, uh, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus responded, you shall do what? You shall love the Lord your God. And the, second, and the second commandment is what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. John Owen said that love is the principal grace. Jonathan Edwards wrote, All the Christian graces are alike related to one and the same grace, namely divine love as a sum of them all. But this New Year's Sunday morning, the question I don't want to ask is, are you pursuing holy love? Neither is the question I'm asking, do you have the right definition of holy love? The question I have this morning is, why does holy love matter? Who cares? Why does it matter if I have love or not? One philosopher said that it amounts to the same thing if one gets drunk alone or is a leader among nations. Does it amount to the same thing? Why not just get drunk alone and live for the selfish pleasures of this world or live for the glory of this world and try to climb the political ladder or the top of a corporate ladder? Why does it matter if I'm loving or not? Why pray for this? Why make this a resolution? Well, in Paul's prayer, we see that holy love is not a dead-end street. Increasing and abounding in love is going somewhere. It's not an end in itself. There is purpose and holy love. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We see in this passage there are three layers of purpose. Um, we have to trek to the foothills, so to speak, and hike to the snow line and climb to the peak purpose. There are three layers of purpose. And my hope is that of all the things that we resolve to, it would be Resolve to Christian love. So I have three points here. I'll give you a roadmap for those who are taking notes. Our focus really is just on verses 10 to 11. Um, the first point is the foothills of excellence. The first purpose of holy love is so that you may approve what is excellent. And the second point is in verse 10. I call it the snow line of eternity. The second purpose is so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ. And then the peak of glory is the third point. The peak of glory, that's in verse 11. The ultimate purpose 
is the glory and praise of God. So, let's look at this first point. As we ascend from the base of the mountain, we reach the foothills, there's a gradual increase in elevation. Holy love is not an end in itself. It has this first purpose. So that you may approve what is excellent. So knowledgeable, discerning love has this immediate purpose of forming a capacity in you. As a first purpose, it's like a hammer to a nail. The hammer has this greater purpose of constructing or building something. But the immediate purpose is to drive a nail into a wall or a four-by-four. And so the reason we grow in love and discernment is to create in us this immediate purpose and a certain capacity that we would be able to approve what is excellent. So what do we mean by approve? It means to test and draw a conclusion about the worth of something. It's, it's testing gold by fire to show that it's not fool's gold. It's recognizing what is truly golden, what's truly excellent. And by implication, it means choosing, choosing what you recognize as excellent. So approving here means both concluding uh, the worth of something and choosing it out of all the other options. Now Paul uses this phrase, what is excellent, and that's meant to bring out a sense of comparison. It's not... Paul's not comparing what's excellent versus what is evil here. He's comparing what is excellent versus what is good. Paul is not concerned with what is right and wrong in this passage. He's concerned with what's best and second best. Far more difficult than determining what's black and white, what's right and wrong, is determining what is good, better, and best. I can tell the difference between a flamingo and a bat. But it takes a vet to tell me the difference between a finch and a swallow. Or it takes an artist to tell you the difference between porcelain white and pearl white. Even a child knows the difference between his favorite blanket and all the other light blue blankets. So too, holy love has a purpose of forming in us an acute moral sense that cuts like a razor blade that can tell the difference between what's central and what's second, what's excellent and what's excessive. Peter says in Second um, Peter chapter 1, verse 3, God called us to his own glory and excellence. We are called to be excellent as our Father in heaven is excellent. And without biblical love flourishing in our hearts, we never think in terms of excellence. We only think in terms of what's tolerable. We only ask, is it unlawful? Is this a sin? Is it harmless? 
We only ask, is there anything wrong with it? And we set the lowest standard possible. And yet Paul here is saying, I want you to be excellent. I don't want you to settle for mediocrity. So then, what exactly is the excellent Christian life? What does that look like? I think in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verse 29 to 31, it gives us a clue. It says, Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now listen closely. And I will show you a still more excellent way. And then what's 1 Corinthians chapter 13? What does he talk about there? Love. So excellence doesn't ask What's wrong with it? Excellence asks, is this the most loving thing I can do? Does this increase my love for God? Does this help me be a more loving person? Does this help kill my envy, my arrogance, my irritability, my rudeness? Does this build up the church of God? Excellence doesn't just ask, is it wrong? It asks, is this the most loving thing I can do? God's purpose for holy love is so that the aim of our lives wouldn't be squandered on a mediocre life. And this is actually freeing. Because excellence isn't having a perfect body or living a long life. Excellence isn't having a charismatic personality that everyone is drawn to. Excellence isn't having the best school, going to the best school, having the best degree with the best GPA. Excellence isn't having the picturesque home with the perfect Christmas card. It isn't traveling the world and experiencing the thrills of life. It isn't having a successful career where you're at the top of the food chain. It's not even counting conversions or having a a large church. All of that is really mediocre and second rate. God tells us what excellence is. And apart from holy love, you cannot approve what is excellent. God says discerning, truth-saturated, self-giving love is the excellent way. Apart from holy love, our lives will be squandered. It will be thrown into the cistern of eternal mediocrity. Climbing to the foothills of excellence puts into sharp focus what really matters. A life of significance is one characterized by holy Love. 
So then, we must ascend a little higher. Paul brings us higher on the mount. We hike past the foothills of excellence. We're about 14,000 feet above sea level. Uh, the rocky path starts giving way to a snowy trail. Trees begin to disappear. And we reach the snow line of eternity. Um, we live, we used to live in downtown Chicago, and um, Chicago, uh, November 2017, it was my wife's first birthday in Chicago, so we decided to go up to the Sears or the Willis Tower, the Sky Deck, and it was so high we could see helicopters flying beneath us, and we can actually spot our little apartment north on Oak Street. But what was really remarkable was seeing the massive city, this massive sprawling system of streets and blocks that stretched to the horizon. And what it did was it made our little apartment seem infinitely more uh, small. And so, too, we need to reach high enough to see the sprawling city of eternity and see that there is much more than the small little apartment called the present. The second purpose of holy love is so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So the purpose of growing in love is not just to make you morally excellent. There's another greater purpose all our decisions in our ordinary lives, uh, when we wake up tomorrow morning and commute to work or change diapers or type essays, every decision in our ordinary lives has eternal significance. Why does it matter if we have love or not? It matters because God has a date circled on his calendar. He has an appointment with all of mankind. And Christ will lay open all the hearts of man, and he will examine each one with perfect scrutiny. The reason for holy love is because Christ holds us accountable, and his judgment will have eternal ramifications. God will render rewards to his people based on how we lived in this present, ordinary, Costco-shopping, keyboard-typing lives. And God will see if in this life we pursued love, which issues forth in purity and blamelessness. Now, pure here means without mixed motives. Uh, some translations render it as sincere. It means purity of motive, without alloy. It's like lifting up a $100 bill to the sunlight uh, to see if it's counterfeit or not. God will lift up our hearts to the sunlight of his scrutiny and see if, it, if the motives were counterfeit or sincere. And blameless here means being without offense. It means being blameless. It means first being blameless before God so we would not have offended his holiness and grace. We would have 
trusted in Christ for salvation and believed in the gospel and lived in devotion to him. And secondly, it means being blameless or without offense toward others. We will be of no cause of offense toward others. We won't be insensitive to the weaknesses and temptations. It means being without offense. So then holy love prepares us for the day of Christ by making us pure and blameless. Holy love then breaks down the walls of our segmented lives. We typically have one room for uh, co-workers and one room for churchgoers, um, one for my public life and one for my private. Holy love shatters the dividing walls of our lives, and, and it creates a sense of consistency. Not necessarily sameness or uniformity, not that you have to be exactly the same in private as you are in public, but that you will be controlled by the same single motive of love to God and others in all the areas of your life. Holy love to God and others will characterize everything you do, whether at the workplace, sitting in the pew, hanging out at home with the family or commuting to work or sitting in bed late at night with a phone screen in front of you, you will be controlled by love to God and others in all things. It creates a sense of purity and blamelessness. God will make you fully consistent. He will remove all the dross of insincerity and present you as pure gold. On the day of Christ, you will love Christ with full sincerity as Christ loves you with full sincerity. So then, at the snow line of the mountain, we see that the purpose of holy love is not just for excellence. It's preparing us for the day of Christ. Every day in the year 2022 is interpreted in light of the day of Christ. Every act and decision counts for that day. So then does it matter or does it amount to the same thing whether one gets drunk alone or is a leader among nations? In one sense, yes, because all the needs of drunkards and politicians will bow to Christ. But the criteria, it would still be different, but the criteria wouldn't be if you're an influential leader or an unknown bar hopper. The criteria would be, did holy love issue forth from your life? Did it create a sense of purity and blamelessness? Now, we have to keep going up this mountain of purpose. We've ascended from the base of holy love, made it to the foothills of excellence, reached the snow line of eternity. Now we have to climb to the peak of glory. And perhaps our muscles are fatigued and there's bitter cold. Every step feels like life or death. And in verse 11, we reach the peak. 
We can't go any higher. All things are downstream from there. Love, excellence, the day of Christ, it's all leading to one summit, one ultimate purpose. It's the glory and praise of God. So let's look at this, the third point, the peak of glory. God's ultimate goal is to glorify himself. From the viewpoint of God's glory, we see the world then in right perspective. We see why we exist. Our lives aren't meaningless. As if it doesn't matter what we do, the ultimate goal of all mankind is to glorify God. The purpose of the created order is to glorify God. All seraphim and mosquitoes, every sunrise and snowstorm is meant to show God's greatness. The end point of all of history, whether the rise and fall of Rome or you're rising out of bed in the morning and falling asleep tonight, the end point of all of history is the glory of God. It has one purpose, to glorify God. So then our love then, our holy love, is not God's ultimate goal. Living a life of excellence is not God's ultimate goal. Even, be, even being pure and blameless for the day of Christ is not God's ultimate goal. God's ultimate goal is to glorify himself. So then the goal in pursuing love is not about ourselves. The purpose of holy love is not primarily ethical, simply because it's the right thing to do. It's not sociological. We, we love people to create better living conditions that humans may flourish. It's not psychological to make you feel better about yourself. Holy love has a doxological purpose to glorify God. And this was an underlying problem for Philippi. If you look at chapter 2, verse 3, and just scan your eyes over, it, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And the word conceit there literally means empty glory. Really, all humankind is conceited. We all want to be recognized. We all want to hoard glory for ourselves. And we fling the glory due to God. And yet, holy love contradicts that. Holy love contradicts conceit, and it leads to the glory of God. Now, how does, that do, how does it do that exactly? How does holy love equate to God's glory? And there's at least one way that's shown here. And if you look at that phrase in verse 11, it says, Filled with the fruit of righteousness. So on the day of Christ, as we stand pure and blameless, the image there is a fruit-bearing tree. And it's loaded down with bearing a full crop. So when Paul describes this fruit as fruit of righteousness, he means that we will be full of righteous deeds. 
There will be a full harvest of good works on the day of Christ. And it begins with love. So love is the root of this fruit-bearing tree. But notice, who does the filling here? See that verb? It says filled. It's a passive verb. When a water bottle is filled with water, the water bottle is passive. That means someone else is filling it up. So it means that we aren't the source of righteous, loving works. It doesn't come from us. So then who does the filling? It says it there in verse 11, doesn't it? It says the fruits of righteousness are those that comes through Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ, by His Holy Spirit, who pours into us a life full of loving deeds. In other words, God is the one who makes us loving. The fruits of righteousness are the products of God. Paul is praying to God to make us presentable to God, which, can, which is only possible through the work of God. Our holy love, which issues forth in righteous deeds, is from beginning to end all about God. Now, God is glorified because our love then, our love and excellence and purity and righteous deeds are not self-generated. Everything we do which is good which flows from love, is due to God's grace. Meaning, God doesn't just supply us with saving grace. He supplies us with enabling, strengthening grace. Our dependence, from, our dependence on God isn't just at the beginning of our Christian life. Our dependence upon Christ extends all through, throughout our lives until we stand blameless before him. All our love, all our knowledge, any effort to, towards excellence, any righteous deeds are all from God's filling. We are always recipients, then, of God's grace. So then, we see that this is why Paul prays for this to happen. This is a prayer. Don't forget that. Paul is asking that God would do this work in them. It requires an act of God's supernatural act of grace in their lives for this to occur. So then God is glorified in our love because apart from God, no one would love. We would abound in self-centered hatred. We would only dabble in the trivialities of life. We will be content with impurity of motives. Apart from God, there would be no love. So God is glorified in holy love because it's impossible on human terms. To truly love God and others with self-sacrificial concern is 
Impossible. Who can do that? George Mueller was a 19th century evangelist, and he was well known for establishing and sustaining orphanages in England. But he was really well known because he never directly asked anyone for money. And he never took a salary in the last 68 years of his ministry. And he never took a loan. And the surprising thing was is that he never went into debt. And the orphanages were sustained all throughout his life. The orphans never went hungry. Now, I say that not because we should adopt his business practices. He was kind of an, ex- an eccentric kind of man. I say it because what he says is absolutely true. He said, There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. The bankruptcy of our loveless hearts is meant to glorify God's supply of grace. Our emptiness magnifies God's supply of strength. So then God will do everything he can to show you how weak you are. How prone you are to sinful indifference. How prone we are to prefer that which is less significant. How prone we are to unrighteousness and loveless hearts. And why does he do that? So that you can realize that apart from God, nothing good comes from us. Nothing. He must first make you empty in order to fill you with fruit of righteousness. And in the end, we will say, it was all God. So then God's purpose in making our love uh, abound in filling us with the fruits of righteousness is meant to increase his glory and praise. When we stand before Christ on that day, pure and blameless, we will acknowledge that it was all God. So then why does it matter if we resolve to love? It matters because it leads to God's glory and praise. So then, let's pray for love. Let's pray to be resolute in our love to God and to others in this new year. And that way we would live lives of excellence and we will be pure and blameless and God would be glorified. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we know, Lord, how prone we are to wander. And yet, Lord, you still call us to love. And it's meant, Lord, to make us rely upon your strength And so, Lord, we 
we act in faith, knowing that indeed it is not within the realm of human ability. It exceeds it, Lord. And yet we call to you, Lord, to sanctify us, to consecrate us to your purposes, that you may be glorified in our lives. Dear God, you are good and you are gracious in all things. And we glorify you now. In Jesus' name, amen.